first and foremost, I just want to say thematic investing is a better mousetrap for global small caps. Um, what I'm hoping to do today is provide kind of an overview, that 40,000 foot view about why I believe this asset class in particular is incredibly well suited for thematic investing um, and give you a taste to think about the world a little bit differently than we do uh, from an investment management perspective uh, on, the, on the traditional way. Um, so let me first start by saying what is the case for thematic investing? Why would we even bring this to, to bear? Um, the way we think about investing across many asset classes is a function of size, it's a function of style, it's a function of region. Hey, you are U.S. small cap growth, you are Aussie small caps, you are global large cap equities. We've segmented it this way because it's easy to define, it's easy to put in boxes, and then we can allocate to it. The problem with it from a theoretical perspective when we constrain the asset managers to being in that pigeonholed area is it's often historical referencing or looking, right? Those style boxes and those spaces are a function of what's happened in the past, especially as it relates to index providers. What thematic investing does for us, when built upon, call it a foundational economic premise, allows us to look into the future and say, where's the world going? And how do we invest towards those ends versus saying, I'm going to be tied to what was called growth in the past, and this is what's in my index, and this is how I'm going to have to be measured, and here's my tracking error. So instead of being so backwards looking in our construct, we're going to be a little bit more forward looking. To begin, let me just start to lay out what it means to be thematic and how do you build a thematic uh, conceptual portfolio that's rooted in a, found, I mean, a sound and fundamental approach. Um, the way that we've approached this is that we believe there's secular growth trends in the market, and those secular growth trends in and of themselves may not be investable. But the way that they interact with disruptors and innovation in the market is where the themes present themselves. So the three secular growth trends that are out there, and these are kind of known knowns. These are things that nobody's going to really argue about, and we all largely agree, and that aren't going to change. The first one being population growth. As I heard said earlier today, is that we've got roughly 8 billion in the, on the planet today. We're going to go to 10 billion in 30 years. Uh, it's 25% population growth. The math of that is effectively we're adding 200,000 net new people every single day, which for those of you here in Australia means we're replicating Australia over the course of every 130 and 140 days uh, over the course of a, um, you know, during the year. The second one that we have is aging, right? And this is the idea that people are living longer. And then the third one is the idea of urbanization, you know, the fact that there is this migration pattern that happens over time. And these are trends that we've seen in the market. They're durable. They're not um, things that are really all that uh, controversial in any way, shape, or form. Population growth, just as the first one to touch on it, you know, is, like we said, 8 billion to 10 billion people. Um, what's interesting in that is that it obviously matters by location. We've got certain markets developing markets that have higher fertility rates, which is going to change the labor participation rates over the course of the next decade or two. We have more developed markets that have lower fertility rates. And so the way that the, um, the makeup of these markets looks over time will be migrating. In and of itself, not easy to invest in as, as a concept. Uh, aging, every one of you has contributed your role to aging today by being here and being alive, right? It's something that we see happening. Uh, men continue to die faster than women, which I haven't heard any complaints from the women on. Um, it is, even with that though, we are living longer than we did. And this is a function of advances in, in healthcare, access to healthcare, also food availability, a whole host of things, right? But this also presents problems, right? So if we think about population growth, 
and what that means to go from 8 billion people to 10 billion people. You know, the great poet and philosopher, uh, Notorious B.I.G., you know, said it best, more money, more problems, more people, more problems, right? You think about it, aging, it's the same problem, right? Old people, old problems, right? This is what's happening, and this is going to create opportunities and solutions. The third one's urbanization, right? What happens with these people? Uh, as many of you probably have done and have done in your own careers, is people go to where the jobs are, and businesses put jobs where the people are. Um, there's this mass migration from rural markets to urban markets that's been happening over decades. We were roughly 30% urban in 1950. We're going to be 70% uh, urban by 2050, right? What does that bring? Well, that brings the rise of more and more megacities. Uh, this trend is particularly acute in emerging markets, which makes sense because that's where the population growth is. And so the idea of EM infrastructure and healthcare and services and all those types of things comes into play as something that's a major trend that will be happening. But in and of itself, these are all really slow moving. But they're all moving in a singular direction, getting bigger, getting larger, and something that we can count on from a growth perspective. Okay? But that doesn't make for a theme. What makes for a theme is the intersection between these secular growth trends and call it a disruptive force. Something that's going to change the way the world works, right? It's going to be a new innovative technology. It's going to be a resource constraint, right? That we have a desire to see GDP growth go, but if we don't have a way to power things, that can't happen, right? So how do we handle resource constraints? And it's going to be societal pressures, right? It's the idea that governments and bodies and companies and people all have views about what and how life should look like for your populations, right? And that's a very local thing. Uh, in terms of how it may play out. But there is this rising um, collective push, not to say socialism or like that, but just, hey, what should life look like? What are basic services that everybody should be entitled to? You know, what's a right versus you know, a want to have? Uh, and so when we start to think about those, it also creates investable opportunities. Um, when you combine all that together, right, this is where we start to think, okay, I'm seeing huge opportunity if I can take a really clear picture of what the future is going to be, I can start to invest towards those ends with a long-term mentality, which means I'm not so caught up in the quarter in, quarter out of any given investment. I'm caught up in the, hey, will this trend play out in a way that's reasonable, durable, and if it is, it's likely to attract more capital over time, more investment, and demonstrate higher growth rates in the broader market. And ultimately, we believe that we'll see it appreciate. Thus, thematic investing is a better mousetrap for global small cap. The interaction between secular growth trends and these disruptive and innovative forces creates themes. What do those themes look like? Right? They're broad-based. And this is, I think, really important for people to understand. You can thematically invest and say, I just care about the next shiniest thing that's out there. Um, population growth is not sexy. Well. How you grow population can be, but in and of itself, um, population growth is not, right? The idea of people moving to an, an urban environment, that's not super exciting in and of itself, right? The fact that we're all getting older, I mean, nobody's going to be like, yeah, this is a great thing that's happening. Um, what gets exciting about this, when you think about how broad-based all of these are, is that I'm not worried about just the next flash-in-the-pan fad that's going to be exciting and keep people. I'm worried about, like, the basics that are going to be meaningful in terms of where capital has to be allocated to. Guess what? Retirement homes. Nobody's saying, hey, I can't wait to think about the next retirement home opportunity. But if I think about aging and comfort and what we're going to care about and what our clients and uh, consumers care about is I want to know what retirement looks like. And I've got more and more people living for longer periods of time. What does that care continuum look like? 
And as a nation, and that's gonna be a much more local thing, is do we have enough space, capacity for that? And is there an opportunity as we see these things moving that direction for that to be a place that could really grow, if that makes sense? You know, other ones that would be just on the page here, automation and robotics, the idea of a fourth industrial revolution that's ongoing, right? You've got uh, EM infrastructure and EM healthcare, like we've talked on the urbanization side of things where that would come into play. You know, medical devices, health tech, smart mobility. This is these little interactive points between the secular growth, again, and these disruptive trends, creates the visionary of where is capital going to have to go to meet the needs, right? This is where the problem and pain points are going to be. How do we allocate capital there to solve it, okay? When we identify society, resources, and technology, and I say, let me look at technology as the primary disruptive trend or influencer on any given one of these key drivers, urbanization, population growth, and aging, I can then group them into transform transformation categories. So I can get digital transformation out of the ones where technology is the primary influencer. Automation robotics, FinTech, enabling technology, smart mobility. Uh, let's dive into one of these a little bit more deeply just so you can say, I can see how this is actually applicable now to investments and companies themselves. So the idea of digital data. Um, what is driving digital data, right? Digital data is effectively the wake that we all leave across our lives um, in everything that we do. And if we think about, for many of us, what our digital data footprint looked like 40 years ago versus today, we largely had a very, very small one, right? My parents probably had a credit card, we had a mortgage, we had a couple things that were identifiable to us that were transactions that were electronic in nature, right? What it is today is that every one of you has a handheld supercomputer sitting in your lap or in your pocket right now, right? You've got access to the internet, you've got access to banking, you've got access to um, means of communication, you know, you can text, you can call. Uh, I would argue most of you never use your phones to call people anymore, right? It's less of a phone. It really is a handheld supercomputer. We don't think about it that way in, in the developed world. But if I'm in the emerging world where I don't grow up with a computer in my house, that is my first access to the internet, right? Well, this is creating this massive wave of data that's being collected, right? Because there's more and more people accessing the internet, right? And with that, it creates new opportunities. What, what is data? Uh, I'm a Texan, right? Born and raised there, went and lived in New York for roughly 15 years, moved back to Texas. Um, as a side note, before I came to Australia, and this is my first time here, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's from here, and I was like, hey, what should I expect? He's like, yeah, well, Australia's kind of like Texas, only with better beaches, which I thought was really high praise for the people, because I have high views of Texans. Um, I, the beaches think I totally get. If you've ever been to a Texas beach, uh, I promise you'll never go back. So um, book, book your vacation somewhere else. Um, but what do we see with data, right? We see that data has gone and is expected to grow by a factor of 10 between 2020 and 2030, right? The equivalent amount of data that'll be collected and stored at that point will be roughly 600 iPhones per person on the planet, right? That's an obscenely large thing. Well, how does that relate to Texas? Well, Texas is all about oil. Data is the new oil, right? What do we do with it? We mine for it, drill for it, we store it, right? We transport it, we transform it, and we try to monetize it, right? How do we monetize data? Well, if you think about it, the conversations you have, right, through text, through email, through social media, through all these things, is you leaving a little bit of fingerprints on things that you care about or don't care about, right? Companies are trying to use every bit of that information to help bring you to a point or a call of action at a point that you're most vulnerable to make a decision, 
right? And the more they know about you, the more that they see into your personality and they can leverage all of these little insi small insignificant things, the easier it is for them to target you at that, not necessarily moment of weakness, but moment of opportunity to them. And that's where the opportunity is from an investment perspective. Digital data from a data infrastructure, you know, from the data processing side of things and the guys that can run analytics from the guys that can transform this just massive resource, if you will, into a call to action for a consumer drives com commerce. And the companies that do that well, both in enabling companies to make the decision and the ones that can use it to drive uh, higher sales, this is where you've got value and opportunity. Health and societal transformation, the second large category that we can roll up and say, this is a function of what society values. And as society values things, they're going to invest in it, right? What do we care about as society? Well, there's some level of health care that we think people have a right to, right, and what that should look like. It varies, again, by geography. We know that genetic therapies, you know, are something that's emerging. Well, why are we, why are we investing so much in that? Well, one, we've got technologies now that can meet these large um, opportunities or unmet needs across a wide array of rare diseases, something we're really excited that there's promising opportunity for. Education services. We talked about two billion people joining the planet. How do you educate them, right? What's the purpose of education? Well, it depends on where you come from, but the idea ultimately is you want people to learn to learn and to learn to think for themselves because then you get a highly functioning society some level of indoctrination and also kind of understanding the cultural shared narratives and all that that comes into play. But you want to see a, a society that educates well. So what's the investments and what's the barriers um, that need to come down in order for us to meet the need of these two billion people that will be on the planet over and above where we are. So let's just touch on aging and comfort as one of the opportunities here. You know, what do we desire? Well, when people retire, they desire to retire well. You know, they're living longer and they want to live longer in comfort. What does that look like? Well, it depends. You know, for me, with a high risk of a cardiac, you know, event or whatever, I only have to plan for like a three-year retirement, so it's a pretty easy thing. Um, for a lot of people, though, hey, 20, 25 years, 30, it's a very different dynamic. The idea of retiring at 65 for, you know, which is a very American uh, concept, but that's kind of limited to the baby boomer generation. That's not necessarily going to be normal. Um, so the idea of these themes, again, you can kind of see how this starts to play together from an aging and comfort, it's like, what does this mean for financial services? What does this mean on the retirement home industry? What does this mean on the food industry that we're gonna try to um, you know, make sure that people have you know, the right nutrition and things like that? Sustainable transformation, obviously a big push right now across the world. Um, this is gonna be where resource constraints come in as a primary influencer on these secular growth drivers. All of a sudden, this creates agricultural yield. How do we feed everybody? Clean air and carbon reduction, right? How do we continue to see an economies grow and flourish at the same time deal with climate change, right? What do, what do we have there? Food revolution, the idea of people caring more about what they eat, where it came from, how it was, how it was raised. Water scarcity, right? An issue across you know, so many different regions and locations. What are the new technologies that can be applied to address these issues? You know, clean air and carbon reduction, as you can imagine, the goals that we have, and this is something driven oftentimes by, by countries, right, but it's also influenced by companies that are demanded by customers in many respects, is this going to be an obscene amount of investment to come anywhere close to doing the things that we desire to do? Well, there should be a lot of interesting small caps that can be point solutions into that. So like I said, thematic investing is a better mousetrap for global small caps. We can see where the themes are. Now the question is, why does it matter in small caps more than anywhere else? And let me give you that. There's four primary reasons that small caps are a really interesting place. It's because active management in small cap is much more effective. Um, 
several reasons for that, and several reasons small caps are more um, interesting from a thematic. First and foremost, they're easy to understand. Many small cap companies are also purpose built, right? And so you end up with companies that are actually designed to address some of these specific themes that are out there, which means I can get good exposure. If I think about the whole construct of the small cap universe, roughly 6,000 stocks in the MSCI, all country world small cap, 2,000 of them would be classified within this thematic universe. Of that 2,000, roughly 90% of their revenues can be directly related to these underlying themes. Right? Not being a diversified business model is actually a really good thing for thematic investment. So if I want this exposure, I get it very cleanly through small caps. You know, there's the idea of diversification, right? To sit there and have small caps in your portfolio if you don't have them, provide some level of diversification, differentiated return series. It can be a really interesting approach to allocating risk to have new, new return opportunity. The thematic breadth and depth we talked about, right? And so when we say sustainable, digital, and health and societal transformation, there are applications for them across sectors. This isn't just about being a technology thing or just about being a new industrial fund or just about being some kind of new consumer company. Is that you can find spaces this plays out to build a diversified portfolio. Right? And ultimately, in small cap, one of the biggest things is that every investment decision really matters. In large cap, you've got the, the high class problem of having to decide what you want to do with the five or 10 large mega caps that are in your universe. Do I overweight them? Do I underweight them? But whatever I choose to do, right? If I underweight them and don't own them, I get fired for not because they worked. If I overweight them, I have to use a huge chunk of my portfolio, which ultimately can't add value just to get to be overweight which means it's just ineffective. Small caps, we don't have that problem. We're overweight in anything we own, which means we have really high active share. But even more importantly in small caps is that we have limited analyst coverage on the street, which means we're super information inefficient, which means for people that can dedicate resources to do fundamental research is you can find things that people don't understand and don't appreciate and add value. Um, the other big benefit is that small cap CEOs and CFOs have to talk to people like us because they don't have a big IR department and they're trying to cultivate an, an investor base and ultimately they'll probably have capital needs and so it's important for them to do that. So it's a much easier access to management. Lastly, performance, right? Doesn't matter if small caps don't perform better because you will take a risk premium with this. But if this is the comparison between the MSCI all country world small cap and the MSCI all country world index. And over time, as you'd expect, small caps have delivered better returns over time. Um, so with this promise, if I can deliver a thoughtful, economically founded thematic, thematic universe tied to things that we see in the future and then apply active management on top of it, I kind of get the best of both worlds. I'm putting a great fisherman on top of a pond that's stocked with fish. What should the result be? Should be good results. And with that, thematic investing is a bear mousetrap for global small caps. Uh, my name is Ross Hossman. I'm a senior analyst at Portfolio Construction Forum. We've heard a lot about megatrends, structural megatrends, secular megatrends, uh, big globalization, mm -hmm. changes in demographics. But the world is not actually you know, running at the same speed. On one side, right. we have China, we have uh, uh, Europe and US that have some demographic issues. On the other hand, you have India, where mm -hmm. demographic is very positive. How do you see thematic investing in using small cap as a vehicle in these two kind of different uh, yeah. regions with a different demography, demography, especially China, China and India? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's most exciting. When I, when I go back to the point that small caps are simple, that's what's really nice about them. I mean, you can find ones that are multinational, have exposure across borders, all that kind of thing. You can also find a lot of them that are local and local to a fault, and that's sometimes what you want. 
So if I'm looking for somebody that can benefit directly from the urbanization trends that I see in India and recognize that that's a much more powerful force locally there is I can find local Indian companies that do that that aren't trying to be something in Malaysia or Indonesia or somewhere else, right? And so, you know, I think it's just one of the things about small caps having such a broad uh, swath of opportunities means that when there's something, call it more pinpoint that I care about, I can find it. You know, and so to your on, on China versus India, you know, it's a relative value opportunity set. If one of them is going to be exposed to this trend and the other isn't, right, I can easily avoid one and pick the other. Um, so think about it, if I am a large industrial multinational with high free cash flow that knows I need to revolutionize my manufacturing process, right? They've got the capital to do it. They've got a vision to say this is what I can save on labor. This is why it makes sense. Uh, from a practical perspective, where is the solution provider that they're getting that from? Is that from a automated line, it may be something as simple as the rollers that you see packages move down, it's more than likely a small cap company. Right? It may be the IoT side of industrial IoT that's happening, where what makes my line more efficient? Well, it's more efficient when it's running at capacity and I have less downtime because something breaks. So the more sensors I have on that means that I can say, here's the preventative downtime that we need to take so that I don't have a unexpected downtime and keep things operating. Well, that's where you have a small cap uh, semiconductor company that's going to be the guy that's building the chip right for that and so for small caps we don't have to win as being the all-in solution provider we're a point solution provider on a lot of little things that can fit into those big trends like i mean for me one of the things that i think is going to be really interesting is just the idea of commerce uh, we think about e-commerce and why we like shopping on like an amazon or a website you know part of it we don't have to deal with people and we've turned more and more insular in a weird, weird way right it's also the fact we don't deal with the checkout experience right i just got done doing back to school shopping on like the tax-free weekend at an outlet mall in the u.s I, it's just not worth saving the money, to be honest with you. Like the check-in line is like 50 people long. But what's going to happen is that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, like that experience will be revolutionized. Every single item in the store will be tagged, right? Your identity will be tagged. You'll be picking stuff up and walking out, and your credit card will be charged. And that technology is there, right? It's cheap, and it will be there across grocery stores to regular consumer companies, but that's where small caps are playing. And so it's helping to enable these things, and it's going to be really interesting. And so as a space, they're not going to be the all-in solution provider, but they'll be the, the point solution providers that can really drive value. And for them, right, I'm not building off a revenue base of $2 billion where it's really hard to raise the next 100 or $200 million. I'm building off a revenue base of $100 million, $150 million. I have one question from, the, yeah. from online. So do thematic ETFs not cause liquidity and therefore pricing issues in the small cap space? Uh, it can. So the idea of thematic ETFs, right, is not a bad one. Um, it can cause challenges, especially when it's a super, super crowded trade. Um, and there's two issues, I think, that come into play there. There's the money in the ETF itself and all the follow-on shadow money that's invested outside of the ETF trying to replicate the strategy. And if you do that in a small cap company that's reasonably illiquid, what happens is as that ETF gains assets, those companies get bid up in price just because that's what happens when there's more demand than supply. On the flip side of things, you know, if you see that go the other way and that ETF is losing assets left and right, those companies are going to be unduly punished. That's an opportunity for anybody that's fundamental and long-term in their perspective because they know, hey, this has nothing to do with the, the company itself. This is a function of trading dynamics in the market. And so those are the places that you'd look for opportunities to add value. You know, you'd look to take the opposite side of the trade. So there's 2,000 stocks that can be defined as thematic in the construct of what I've laid out there. You can define thematic as however you want, right? We can say it's all companies with purple logos, and that's my theme. It just doesn't mean it's rooted in anything. 
Um, you can run a portfolio as big or small as you want. You could choose one that's based upon different subsegments of this. We focus on a more concentrated portfolio because we think high conviction, we know this is gonna be kind of a higher tracking error concept, um, but we think the way to capitalize that and to turn that into excess returns could be super compelling. So we're a 40 to 60 stock approach on the global small cap.